So, Dahlia, have you read this latest letter from the Department of Justice alumni group? Yes, the one the one that 2000 uh, former DOJ officials have signed. Yeah, they sound exhausted to me. <laughs> if I were one of these former prosecutors, I'd be exhausted too. Over the last year, they have tried to sound the alarm again and again about the rule of law under the Trump administration especially under Attorney General William Barr. They've written letters to protest the way the DOJ handled the Mueller report, to protest the reduced sentencing recommendation of Trump friend Roger Stone. And now they're talking about the case against former Trump advisor Michael Flynn, which the DOJ decided to suddenly drop cold turkey last week. I think that they simply feel as though like a brisk thwack across the nose is going to make Barr say like, wait, I'm violating all norms. And when he doubles down and doubles down again, they're like, well, what do we do now? I know another strongly worded letters. Yeah. At some point, I'm waiting for them to realize they're like not training a Labrador. You know, it's funny, though. I I, I will say like after I posted my piece about this, I had a, a bunch of people who actually signed the letter say to me, what do you want us to do? And I had <laughs> sort of said in my piece, like, chain yourself to the building. Like the truth is, I don't know what you do. Some prosecutors are making their opinions known not by speaking up, but by refusing to speak at all. When the Department of Justice decided to drop this case against Michael Flynn last week, even though Flynn pleaded guilty to lying to FBI agents, the move was notable for a lot of reasons. But one of them was the absence of the lawyers who had spent years working the case. They refused to sign the paperwork. I mean... These are, I think in lawyer speak, they're called noisy withdrawals, right? It means that they're sliding away, they're ghosting into the night. It's perfectly clear what they're telegraphing. But I think what happens when you send up a signal and nobody understands it? You're stuck either way. You either stay on and commit malpractice, or you leave and become another sort of ineffectual former DOJ lawyer shaking their fist at the sky. Today on the show, the twists and turns in the case against Michael Flynn and why it matters. There's a reason so many government attorneys are doing everything they can in their lawyerly way to get your attention right now. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To understand how the Michael Flynn case ended up here, it helps to rewind, understand who Michael Flynn is. Flynn was a shoe-in to be Trump's national security advisor. Some even floated his name as a potential vice president. Though Flynn had been director of the Defense Intelligence Agency under President Obama, his views had moved sharply to the right over the years. I'll tell you that the Democratic Party 
that exists in this country is not the Democratic Party that I grew up around in my in my uh, upbringing. Not at all. Change registration. Only. You change registration. I vote for leaders. That's what I vote for when I vote. Flynn even led the crowd at the Republican National Convention in chants of "Lock her up." Lock her up. Lock her up. If I did a tenth, a tenth of what she did, I would be in jail today. Flynn brought Washington insider connections to a transition team, otherwise filled with outsiders. Before Trump even took office, Flynn was getting involved with highly sensitive foreign policy. A few weeks after the election, Sergei Kislyak, who was Russia's ambassador to the U.S., gave Flynn a call. He was worried about sanctions President Obama had put in place, a punishment for Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. He was wondering, should Russia respond here, escalate things? And Flynn tells him, just sit tight. And that's why we're talking about a criminal investigation into Flynn now, four years later. Behind the scenes, Flynn was saying, don't go, don't go crazy because we're going to make this okay. And the only reason any of this is important, Mary, is because what Flynn is being investigated for is whether he is susceptible to blackmail by the Russians, right? This is a counterintelligence question. Is he doing something that puts him in a position where the Russians can blackmail him in the future? And does that necessarily make the U.S. government vulnerable to more Russian interference? That was the issue that was being investigated. What they end up getting him for is he just lied about this Kislyak phone call. He lied to Mike Pence. Mike Pence then lied to America. Did Mike Flynn ever discuss lifting sanctions in any of those conversations? Do you know? I I talked to General Flynn yesterday, and the conversations uh, that took place at that time uh, were not in any way related uh, to new U.S. sanctions uh, against Russia or the expulsion of diplomats. All right. Second question. But the issue wasn't that he lied. That's certainly the thing they tag him for. The issue is once he's lied, the Russians know he's lied. Now the Russians have something to use against him. And that was the basis of the inquiry. That's. I think that's like a really important point because I feel like the the focus becomes so much on the lie itself and like what he was lying about and and why he was lying. But you're right that like the focus is really on whether he was vulnerable as the national security advisor, as someone inside the White House, you know, just kind of steps away from the president. That's the issue. It's that all of this, had it gone undetected, would have made him subject, easily subject to more Russian blackmail. And that's, I think, the lens through which you have to to, to look at this. So Flynn is an advisor during the transition to the Trump presidency. And then he assumes this national security advisor role. But I think in an interview that you did with Susan Hennessy, she called it like the world's briefest tenure in that role because he was fired almost immediately after being caught in this lie. And the thing about it is that even at the time, President Trump seemed to be saying, he's still a good guy. It was just a little lie. It's no big deal. 
Right. And that's the thing. Remember, that was what he went when when Trump had his crazy tete-a-tete with Jim Comey, where he cleared the room and he said, can you see your way clear to making this go away? That was about Mike Flynn. So yeah, I think all the way through, Trump was like, eh, you know, who among us doesn't lie 40,000 times a day? And so this was always, I think, Trump's view was the lie was inconsequential. Although again, worth pointing out, Trump fires him from this position. So one of the most interesting things about the Michael Flynn story is how he shapeshifts over time because Flynn gets fired from the White House and he's caught in this lie and it's it's clear that, you know, he's going to be investigated and, and he's going to face legal trouble and he makes a decision which is reasonable. It's the kind of thing a lot of people in his situation would do. He decides to cooperate with the investigators. He pleads guilty. Is he helpful to the investigators at that point? I think he was initially very helpful. And I think this is one other thing we should just note parenthetically. People plead guilty all the time, right? This is arguably a huge problem in the justice system is that people plead guilty because they have some court-appointed attorney who has, you know, a file folder with one piece of paper in it and they say, take the plea. So it's easy to think, and this is, again, uh, we see this in, you know, uh, the conversation around Flynn, like, poor guy, you know, he, he was entrapped and he took this plea and he didn't do it. This is an incredibly sophisticated government actor who has incredible lawyers. This is not some poor guy who, like, shoplifted at Walmart. This is somebody who has been a public figure for a very, very long time. And represented by counsel, not once but twice, pleads guilty and says, yes, I did all these things. And so I think it's just important to separate him from the many, many sorry souls who plead guilty without the advice of counsel, without a sophisticated knowledge of what that implies. So that's just like a sidebar. Hmm. Uh, but but then I think you're you're absolutely right. He cooperates with the Mueller investigation. Initially, they're really happy with his cooperation. Um, I think there's a feeling that he's giving useful intel and he appears all over the Mueller report. And then I think that he felt as though he was not getting the kinds of rewards back for his cooperation that he expected. Flynn was facing a possible prison sentence, despite the fact that he'd been cooperating with the investigation. So what does he do? He blows up his plea deal, fires his attorney, and hires new counsel. And he said, you know what? I changed my mind. I know I pled, I pleaded guilty twice, but I'm not guilty. Uh, the FBI was inappropriate. In, in real time, we saw him revert from... I did something bad, I'm going to try to act honorably, I'm going to admit to it and take my lumps to, it never happened. And if it happens, so what? Everybody lies. You mentioned that Flynn got this new attorney, and she was quite key in bringing out this new evidence from FBI investigators that this team claimed showed a kind of entrapment of Michael Flynn. Can we talk about what that evidence was? Yeah, I think it's just internal notes. It shows that there was dissension as between the FBI and the Justice Department. You know, there was 
one impulse to close the investigation into Flynn during the transition. There was another to keep it open. It, it was never closed. And so the idea that this investigation was somehow illicitly reopened after being closed is not factually true. But I think that there was just a dispute as between the FBI and the Justice Department. I think the FBI got out over its skis and did some things that the DOJ didn't agree with. But I think that the entire notion that this is quote unquote brand new information that no one has seen, this is all stuff that Rod Rosenstein knew about. There's not much that is new uh, that has surfaced, but I think that what it does is it serves the same narrative that the FBI is illegitimate, the DOJ got worked and they agreed to go forward with this illegitimate prosecution. And I think that the real story is this happens all the time. There's always sort of intra-interagency bickering. And the fact that there was disagreement between the FBI and the Justice Department doesn't mean that what the FBI did was entrapment or unlawful or not legitimate. But that's the story that's been told really effectively. I like that you brought up that this evidence wasn't new. It had just always been there. And it's sort of just the way you package it and present it to people. Because it did take off in right-wing media circles over the last year, this idea that Michael Flynn was entrapped. And it was it was based on notes, basically, that were in the file. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I think if you've worked in an office and brainstormed, you're sort of used to, you know, people jotting down things like, What's our goal here? And it seems, I guess you could see it as entrapment, but it also seems like the kind of stuff you jot down when you're in a meeting with someone and you're trying to figure something out. Yeah, this is just tactics. This is what prosecutors do all the time. I would commend to people, you know, the best place to look as ever is uh Marcy uh, Wheeler uh, at Empty Wheel, who sort of walks through all of this, quote unquote, newly discovered material. And at least uh, Marcy's view is there's not a single thing in here that is new. And I think more pointedly, I'm trying to remember who wrote the piece in the Washington Post, but they said the one new thing that we could see that we've never seen is the actual transcript of the call between Mike Flynn and Sergei Kislyak. In other words, that would be useful new information to know what was actually said in that call. That's been withheld. And what's been uh, uh, unearthed as this shattering new revelations is stuff that's been available to the judge all along. Hmm. It really struck me that just last month, the president was asked about Michael Flynn and whether he would pardon him. And he seemed to presage what's happened in the last week or so. And he said, look, I'm not the judge, but, you know, I don't know that we're going to need to pardon him. Well, it looks to me like uh, Michael Flynn would be exonerated based on everything I see. I'm not the judge, but I have a different type of power. Uh, But uh, I don't. It was just kind of jaw-dropping looking back that the president would say that. And then a few weeks later, his attorney general would decide to drop charges. And I think that goes to how 
radically unprecedented this is. This just doesn't happen that the DOJ, after having elicited, you know, two guilty pleas awaiting sentencing, to have the Justice Department just be like, yeah, we're out. As, by the way, it was radically unprecedented for a a bunch of career prosecutors to say, this is the sentence we recommend for Roger Stone, and then just have political appointees at the very top helicopter in and be like, just kidding, we're going to give him a slap on the wrist. And so I think we're seeing actions coming out of the Justice Department that we just don't see. Were you surprised? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Because I think we all were ready for the pardon. And I think Trump has already shown us that he doesn't hesitate to use his pardon powers indiscriminately. And so I think that there was a sense that, look, he's got an easy way to do this in-house. Like, why reach out and get the Justice Department to compromise its own standards when he can just do it and not be held to account? And that's, I think, why there's this underground ripple of real alarm. Because I think it's one thing for the president to abuse his pardon powers. It's something entirely different when the Justice Department has been conscripted into that project. So you're saying this is worse? Well, yeah. I I don't think there's any dispute that this is worse. This is now using the apparatus of the legal system to do a thing that Trump could have done on his own steam, but now he's really creating, and that's what you're reading, that anxiety in the former Justice Department employee's letter. Once you're out of the realm of Donald Trump's abusing his pardon power into Donald Trump has created a two-tiered system of justice where his friends and cronies and loyalists see the charges against them vaporize, and he is kind of rejiggered the Justice Department to prosecute and go after anyone who wasn't loyal to him. That is a whole other thing. And that's why you're seeing that thread of this is what totalitarian governments do. You've just commandeered the DOJ to do a thing that is anathema to just basic ideas of rule of law. And It very neatly does two things at once. It consolidates power, makes clear that Trump is the decider and leans towards authoritarianism. And it also is part of sweeping under the rug the Mueller investigation and saying, no, no, that wasn't real. That's true. And it, it goes further. It, it it recasts the Mueller investigation as a witch hunt and a hoax. It recasts the impeachment probe as a witch hunt and a hoax. And so it's not just that it's saying it, it wasn't real. It's saying that any attempt by any entity, be it Congress, be it, you know, a special prosecutor, or be it uh, somebody within the Justice Department, any attempt to hold this president or his administration to account is a per se illegitimate enterprise. And so it's beyond just sweeping it under the rug. It's setting up the next and the next and the next. Dahlia says, this is what makes Barr's Justice Department not just bad, but insidious. The motion to dismiss the Flynn case, it isn't just about the Flynn case, not by a long shot. And I guess... We should be clear here, which is the judge here, Judge Sullivan, 
this judge could reject the DOJ's motion here, right? And decide, listen, you don't get to have backsies. I, I think Judge Sullivan's been really interesting, right? He said through, I mean, I think at one point he made headlines by just excoriating Michael Flynn. Uh, I think he used the word treason at one point. So he has been very, very hard on Flynn in these court proceedings. And certainly he he it is his to accept or reject this motion. But I do think that at the end of the day, the consensus seems to be he certainly can't force <laughs> the Justice Department to continue with the prosecution that they say they don't want to bring. And so Judge Sullivan, I've seen an awful lot of suggestions saying that Judge Sullivan not only can but must use his sort of independent authority to ask, for instance, the prosecutor who stepped off this case to explain why he did that. Um, There's precedent for that. Appoint someone as a a friend of the court to investigate what happened internally at DOJ. Um, Just to have hearings to resolve some of the factual questions that the Justice Department has flipped itself on. And so I think he has an independent responsibility to investigate what happened. And so... So it sounds like a lot of people are watching Judge Sullivan. Yeah, and I think we started with this, Mary. I think there's a lot of what's being written, including uh, that letter signed by 2,000 former DOJ uh, officials. I, I think that a lot of what we're seeing is a lot of special pleading saying to Judge Sullivan, look, this is hinky, and for you to just dismiss it because they're asking you to dismiss it is a miscarriage of justice. And I think a lot of what we're seeing this week is some signaling to him that he needs to find out what happened. Late Tuesday afternoon, Judge Sullivan signaled he wasn't ready to throw this case out. He's allowing new briefs to be filed, seeking more information about the DOJ's reasoning here. I want to end the interview by talking about William Barr because While what happened with Michael Flynn certainly says a lot about the Trump administration and President Trump himself and how he values loyalty, this is a a dance that requires two people. And William Barr has really made clear where he stands here, that he is a loyalist. He will defend the president's right to do what he wants to do. And he did an interview on CBS this week where he basically said history is written by the winners. When history looks back on this decision, how do you think it will be written? Well, history is written by the winners, so it largely depends on on, (laughs) uh, who's writing the history. But I think a fair history would say it was a a good decision because it it upheld the rule of law. It helped. What what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I think he's been very consistent. Nobody can investigate the president. Nobody can indict the president. Nobody can sneeze at the president. I mean, this has been his raison d'etre. He's really made it his business to create this capacious view of presidential power and authority and presidential untouchability. So this is just a Bill Barr special. And I think that... There's no question that Bill Barr has a deep sense that justice is about winners and losers. It's not about justice. It's about who has power and who doesn't. And his view of the world is that I'm winning and I'm untouchable and you all sign your funny little letters, but 
I'm the decider, Trump is the decider, and this has worked. And so I think in a strange way, what he's saying is what he believes to be true, which is that he's won. Dahlia Lithwick, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate. You can hear more of Dahlia on her podcast, Amicus. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon, Mary Wilson, and Daniel Hewitt. We love hearing from you, especially right now, as we are all dealing with the coronavirus lockdown together. If you've got a story about how your quarantine is going, how the coronavirus is impacting you, get in touch. It could become a story for us. The number to call is 202-888-2588. Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow.